0: Part Two, Chapters Nineteen and Twenty of Democracy in America, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. Democracy in America, Volume Two by Alexis de Tocqueville. Translated by Henry Reeve. Part Two, Chapter Nineteen That Almost All the Americans Follow Industrial Callings. Agriculture is, perhaps, of all the useful arts, that which improves most slowly amongst democratic nations. Frequently, indeed, it would seem to be stationary, because other arts are making rapid strides towards perfection. On the other hand, almost all the tastes and habits which the equality of condition engenders naturally lead men to commercial and industrial occupations. Suppose an active, enlightened and free man, enjoying a competency but full of desires, He is too poor to live in idleness, he is rich enough to feel himself protected from the immediate fear of want, and he thinks how he can better his condition. This man has conceived a taste for physical gratifications which thousands of his fellow men indulge in around him. He has himself begun to enjoy these pleasures, and he is eager to increase his means of satisfying these tastes more completely. But life is slipping away, time is urgent. To what is he to turn?' the cultivation of the ground promises an almost certain result to his exertions but a slow one men are not enriched by it without patience and toil agriculture is therefore only suited to those who have already large superfluous wealth or to those whose penury bids them only seek a bare subsistence the choice of such a man as we have supposed is soon made he sells his plot of ground leaves his dwelling and embarks in some hazardous but lucrative calling Democratic communities abound in men of this kind, and in proportion as the equality of conditions becomes greater, their multitude increases. Thus democracy not only swells the number of working men, but it leads men to prefer one kind of labor to another, and whilst it diverts them from agriculture, it encourages their taste for commerce and manufactures. This spirit may be observed even amongst the richest members of the community, In democratic countries, however opulent a man is supposed to be, he is almost always discontented with his fortune, because he finds that he is less rich than his father was, and he fears that his sons will be less rich than himself. Most rich men in democracies are therefore constantly haunted by the desire of obtaining wealth, and they naturally turn their attention to trade and manufactures, which appear to offer the readiest and most powerful means of success in this respect they share the instincts of the poor without feeling the same necessities say rather they feel the most imperious of all necessities that of not sinking in the world in aristocracies the rich are at the same time those who govern the attention which they unseasonably devote to important public affairs diverts them from the lesser cares which trade and manufactures demand if the will of an individual happens nevertheless to turn his attention to business the will of the body to which he belongs will immediately debar him from pursuing it. For, however men may declaim against the rule of numbers, they cannot wholly escape their sway, and even amongst those aristocratic bodies which most obstinately refuse to acknowledge the rights of the majority of the nation, a private majority is formed which governs the rest. This, however, strikes me as an exceptional and transitory circumstance, When wealth has become the only symbol of aristocracy, it is very difficult for the wealthy to maintain sole possession of political power to the exclusion of all other men. The aristocracy of birth and pure democracy are at the two extremes of the social and political state of nations. Between them, moneyed aristocracy finds its place. The latter approximates to the aristocracy of birth by conferring great privileges on a small number of persons it so far belongs to the democratic element that these privileges may be successfully acquired by all it frequently forms a natural transition between these two conditions of society and it is difficult to say whether it closes the reign of aristocratic institutions or whether it already opens the new era of democracy in democratic countries where money does not lead those who possess it to political power but often removes them from it the rich do not know how to spend their leisure They are driven into active life by the inquietude and the greatness of their desires, and by the extent of their resources, and by the taste for what is extraordinary, which is almost always felt by those who rise, by whatsoever means, above the crowd. Trade is the only road open to them. In democracies nothing is more great or more brilliant than commerce. It attracts the attention of the public, and fills the imagination of the multitude. All energetic passions are directed towards it. Neither their own prejudices, nor those of anybody else, can prevent the rich from devoting themselves to it. The wealthy members of democracies never form a body which has manners and regulations of its own. The opinions peculiar to their class do not restrain them, and the common opinions of their country urge them on. Moreover, as all the large fortunes which are to be met with in democratic community are of commercial growth many generations must succeed each other before their possessors can have entirely laid aside their habits of business. Circumscribed within the narrow space which politics leave them, rich men and democracies eagerly embark in commercial enterprise. There they can extend and employ their natural advantages, and indeed it is even by the boldness and the magnitude of their industrial speculations that we may measure the slight esteem in which productive industry would have been held by them, if they had been born amidst an aristocracy. A similar observation is likewise applicable to all men living in democracies, whether they be poor or rich. Those who live in the midst of democratic fluctuations have always before their eyes the phantom of chance, and they end by liking all undertakings in which chance plays a part. They are therefore all led to engage in commerce not only for the sake of the profit it holds out to them, but for the love of the constant excitement occasioned by that pursuit. The United States of America have only been emancipated for half a century, in 1840, from the state of colonial dependence in which they stood to Great Britain. The number of large fortunes there is small, and capital is still scarce. Yet no people in the world has made such rapid progress in trade and manufactures as the Americans, They constitute at the present day the second maritime nation in the world, and although their manufacturers have to struggle with almost insurmountable natural impediments, they are not prevented from making great and daily advances. In the United States the greatest undertakings and speculations are executed without difficulty because the whole population is engaged in productive industry, and because the poorest as well as the most opulent members of the Commonwealth are ready to combine their efforts for these purposes the consequence is that a stranger is constantly amazed by the immense public works executed by a nation which contains so to speak no rich men. the americans arrived but as yesterday on the territory which they inhabit and they have already changed the whole order of nature for their own advantage they have joined the hudson to the mississippi and made the atlantic ocean communicate with the gulf of mexico across a continent of more than five hundred leagues in extent which separates the two seas The longest railroads which have been constructed up to the present time are in America, but what most astonishes me in the United States is not so much the marvellous grandeur of some undertakings as the innumerable multitude of small ones. Almost all the farmers of the United States combine some trade with agriculture. Most of them make agriculture itself a trade. It seldom happens that an American farmer settles for good upon the land which he occupies, Especially in that district of the far west he brings land into tillage in order to sell it again, and not to farm it. He builds a farmhouse on the speculation that, as the state of the country will soon be changed by the increase of population, a good price will be gotten for it. Every year a swarm of the inhabitants of the north arrive in the southern states and settle in the parts where the cotton plant and the sugar cane grow. These men cultivate the soil in order to make it produce in a few years enough to enrich them and they already look forward to the time when they may return home to enjoy the competency thus acquired. Thus the Americans carry their business-like qualities into agriculture, and their trading passions are displayed in that as in their other pursuits. The Americans make immense progress in productive industry because they all devote themselves to it at once, and for this same reason they are exposed to very unexpected and formidable embarrassments, As they are all engaged in commerce, their commercial affairs are affected by such various and complex causes that it is impossible to foresee what difficulties may arise. As they are all more or less engaged in productive industry, at the least shock given to business, all private fortunes are put in jeopardy at the same time, and the state is shaken. I believe that the return of these commercial panics is an endemic disease of the democratic nations of our age. It may be rendered less dangerous, but it cannot be cured, because it does not originate in accidental circumstances, but in the temperament of these nations. CHAPTER twenty, THAT ARISTOCRACY MAY BE ENGENDERED BY MANUFACTURES I have shown that democracy is favourable to the growth of manufactures, and that it increases without limit the numbers of the manufacturing classes. We shall now see by what side road manufacturers may possibly in their turn bring men back to aristocracy. It is acknowledged that when a workman is engaged every day upon the same detail, the whole commodity is produced with greater ease, promptitude and economy. It is likewise acknowledged that the cost of the production of manufactured goods is diminished by the extent of the establishment in which they are made, and by the amount of capital employed or of credit these truths had long been imperfectly discerned but in our time they have been demonstrated they have been already applied to many very important kinds of manufactures and the humblest will gradually be governed by them i know of nothing in politics which deserves to fix the attention of the legislator more closely than these two new axioms of the science of manufactures when a workman is unceasingly and exclusively engaged in the fabrication of one thing He ultimately does his work with singular dexterity, but at the same time he loses the general faculty of applying his mind to the direction of the work. He every day becomes more adroit and less industrious, so that it may be said of him that in proportion as the workman improves, the man is degraded. What can be expected of a man who has spent twenty years of his life in making heads for pins? and to what can that mighty human intelligence which has so often stirred the world be applied in him except it be to investigate the best method of making pins heads when a workman has spent a considerable portion of his existence in this manner his thoughts are forever set upon the object of his daily toil his body has contracted certain fixed habits which it can never shake off in a word he no longer belongs to himself but to the calling which he has chosen It is in vain that laws and manners have been at the pains to level all barriers round such a man, and to open to him on every side a thousand different paths to fortune. A theory of manufactures more powerful than manners and laws binds him to a craft, and frequently to a spot, which he cannot leave. It assigns to him a certain place in society, beyond which he cannot go. In the midst of universal movement it has rendered him stationary." In proportion, as the principle of the division of labour is more extensively applied, the workman becomes more weak, more narrow-minded, and more dependent. The art advances, the artisan recedes. On the other hand, in proportion, as it becomes more manifest that the productions of manufactures are by so much the cheaper and better as the manufacture is larger, and the amount of capital employed more considerable... Wealthy and educated men come forward to embark in manufactures, which were heretofore abandoned to poor or ignorant handicraftsmen. The magnitude of the efforts required, and the importance of the results to be obtained, attract them. Thus, at the very time at which the science of manufactures lowers the class of workmen, it raises the class of masters." whereas the workman concentrates his faculties more and more upon the study of a single detail the master surveys a more extensive whole and the mind of the latter is enlarged in proportion as that of the former is narrowed in a short time the one will require nothing but physical strength without intelligence the other stands in need of science and almost of genius to ensure success this man resembles more and more the administrator of a vast empire that man a brute the master and the workman have then here no similarity and their differences increase every day they are only connected as the two rings at the extremities of a long chain each of them fills the station which is made for him and out of which he does not get the one is continually closely and necessarily dependent upon the other and seems as much born to obey as that other is to command what is this but aristocracy as the conditions of men constituting the nation become more and more equal the demand for manufactured commodities becomes more general and more extensive and the cheapness which places these objects within the reach of slender fortunes becomes a great element of success hence there are every day more men of great opulence and education who devote their wealth and knowledge to manufacturers and who seek, by opening large establishments, and by a strict division of labor, to meet the fresh demands which are made on all sides. Thus, in proportion, as the mass of the nation turns to democracy, that particular class which is engaged in manufactures becomes more aristocratic. Men grow more alike in the one, more different in the other, and inequality increases in the less numerous class in the same ratio in which it decreases in the community. Hence it would appear, on searching to the bottom, that aristocracy should naturally spring out of the bosom of democracy. But this kind of aristocracy by no means resembles those kinds which preceded it. It will be observed at once that as it applies exclusively to manufacturers and to some manufacturing callings, it is a monstrous exception in the general aspect of society the small aristocratic societies which are formed by some manufacturers in the midst of the immense democracy of our age contain like the great aristocratic societies of former ages some men who are very opulent and a multitude who are wretchedly poor the poor have few means of escaping from their condition and becoming rich but the rich are constantly becoming poor or they give up business when they have realized a fortune thus the elements of which the class of the poor is composed are fixed but the elements of which the class of the rich is composed are not so. To say the truth, though there are rich men, the class of rich men does not exist, for these rich individuals have no feelings or purposes in common, no mutual traditions or mutual hopes. They are therefore members, but no body. Not only are the rich not compactly united amongst themselves, but there is no real bond between them and the poor. Their relative position is not a permanent one, they are constantly drawn together or separated by their interests the workman is generally dependent on the master but not on any particular master these two men meet in the factory but know not each other elsewhere and whilst they come into contact on one point they stand very wide apart on all others the manufacturer asks nothing of the workman but his labour the workman expects nothing from him but his wages the one contracts no obligation to protect nor the other to defend and they are not permanently connected either by habit or by duty the aristocracy created by business rarely settles in the midst of the manufacturing population which it directs the object is not to govern that population but to use it an aristocracy thus constituted can have no great hold upon those whom it employs and even if it succeed in retaining them at one moment they escape the next it knows not how to will and it cannot act The territorial aristocracy of former ages was either bound by law or thought itself bound by usage to come to the relief of its serving men and to succor their distresses, but the manufacturing aristocracy of our age first impoverishes and debases the men who serve it, and then abandons them to be supported by the charity of the public. This is a natural consequence of what has been said before between the workman and the master there are frequent relations but no real partnership i am of opinion upon the whole that the manufacturing aristocracy which is growing up under our eyes is one of the harshest which ever existed in the world but at the same time it is one of the most confined and least dangerous nevertheless the friends of democracy should keep their eyes anxiously fixed in this direction for if ever a permanent inequality of conditions And aristocracy again penetrate into the world, it may be predicted that this is the channel by which they will enter. End of part two, chapters nineteen and twenty.